Today, in a special report, The Daily Wire brings you the chronology of a Hillary Clinton scandal. Friday, March 18th, midnight. Barack Obama's replacement deputy assistant interim acting former press secretary Olga Yamanamalumovich calls a late-night press conference for a blogger named Jerry. Miss Yamanamalumovich, speaking in a rare dialect of Finnish Serbo-Croatian, announces that in response to a FOIA request filed by Judicial Watch in 1977, the administration is releasing a massive stack of documents, videotapes, empty pizza cartons, and out-of-print paperback novels. Monday, June 6, 6 a.m. After combing for weeks through the massive stack of material, blogger Jerry discovers a flash drive containing an erased but recoverable iPhone video showing Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin seducing a 12-year-old boy into a menage a trois, then shooting him to death to keep him quiet, then devouring his body to hide the evidence. After sending a copy of the video to Matt Drudge, blogger Jerry goes out for a walk and is run over by a taxicab 17 times. Fifteen minutes later, the Drudge Report runs a picture of a police siren on top of a red-letter headline, Hill and Huma Seduce, Kill, and Devour 12-Year-Old, with a link to the video on YouTube. YouTube responds to the high traffic by taking the video down, saying it violates their terms of service agreement. A Google search for Hillary Huma Seduce, Kill returns 13 results, all of them related to the film Finding Nemo. No major news outlet covers the story. Tuesday through Thursday, June 7th through 9th, All across the internet, right-wing websites run bootleg copies of the video explicitly showing the atrocity. The murdered boy's weeping mother appears on Sean Hannity, explaining why she's going to vote for Donald Trump. Monday, June 13th. After a weekend in which the Twitter hashtag HillaryKillFeast is trending around the world, Hillary Clinton issues a statement saying the release of the video is a wacky right-wing plot to exploit material hacked off her phone by Russians trying to manipulate an American presidential election. The New York Times, a former newspaper, covers the story with the headline, GOP seeks to use video to prevent first woman presidency. Donald Trump sends out a tweet calling Joe Scarborough a loser who's in bed with Jeff Zucker. Tuesday, June 14th, the story breaks big. The New York Times, ABC, CBS, NBC, and CNN all lead with headlines screaming, Donald Trump slings gay slur at Joe Scarborough. During a panel discussion, CNN's Andrea Mitchell says, quote, this could have been a bad week for the Clinton campaign, what with the whole lesbian murder and cannibalism story, but Donald Trump blew it off the front pages with another of his OMG gaffes. Wednesday, June 15th, at a campaign stop in New Mecca, Michigan, a reporter shouts a question about the scandal at Hillary from the iron press cage behind a rope 30 yards away. Mrs. Clinton responds, that's old news. Here, have a piece of chocolate covered 12-year-old's eyeball. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. <laughs> All right, you got to change that thing with the, my last time I laughed. is now <laughs> One day, one day. <laughs> All right, it's mailbag day. Hooray. But you got to subscribe to be in the mailbag. It's 30 days for free. Subscribe to The Daily Wire. It's 30 days for free. A lousy eight bucks a month. Come on. Then you're in the mailbag. You can ask all the questions you want. We will give you all the answers you need. But, but the mailbag is in the second half of the show. So if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you'll have to switch over to The Daily Wire or download us from iTunes or SoundCloud. And then you can subscribe. 
And meanwhile, of course, if you would pre-order, you know, it's almost time for the book to be available. Uh, the Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ is my memoir. Uh, it's not supposed to be published till September 20th, but I suspect it's going to be available soon because they're sending me copies. And when I get copies, Amazon gets copies. When Amazon gets copies, they don't care. The pub date is, they <laughs> could care less. They'll just send it to you. So if you order it now and you send me the receipt at aclaven at dailywire.com, I will sign a sticker that you can put in the book and have a signed edition of the book. But even without my signature, it's worth reading. What can I tell you? All right. So Trump is going to Mexico, and Hillary should be going to jail, but instead is going to the White House. Close. You know, jail, White House, what's the difference? Here's from the uh, LA Times with the latest uh, Hillary news. The State Department says about 30 emails that may be related to the 2012 attack on the U.S. compounds in Benghazi, Libya, are among the thousands of Hillary Clinton emails recovered during the FBI's recently closed investigation into her use of a private server. These are 30 new. They're looking to see if they're duplicates. But a district court, a U.S. district court judge on Tuesday uh, ordered these things released, and they said, get them out there faster. Uh, the judge questioned why it would take so long to release so few documents and urged that the process be sped up. He ordered the department to report to him in a week, the State Department, to report to him in a week with more details about why the review process would take a full month. It's because we're hiding them. What do you mean? It's like we can't find The hearing was held, the hearing at the uh, U.S. District Court of Appeals was held uh, as one of several lawsuits filed by the conservative group Judicial Watch, who was operating on behalf of, of course, the New York Times and CBS, NBC, and ABC, which haven't filed any FOIA uh, demands for these presses. So if, if not for Judicial Watch, these would never come out. But let's just for a minute remember what Hillary told us in May about the emails. After I left office, the State Department asked former secretaries of state for our assistance in providing copies of work-related emails from our personal accounts. I responded right away and provided all my emails that could possibly be work-related, which totaled roughly 55,000 printed pages, even though I knew that the State Department already had the vast majority of them. We went through a thorough process to identify all of my work-related emails and deliver them to the State Department. She left out the part about the bleach bit destroying all the emails they didn't want to hear, and also the acid, the acid to destroy the uh, smoking gun. You know, it's like what, I, what I love about Hillary Clinton, it's like, you know, Hillary uses sulfuric acid to destroy smoking gun, and the New York Times headline is, there's no smoking gun. You know, <laughs> that's, so that's what she said in May, then last week on Hillary Kimmel, a little different, just a little bit different. My emails are so boring. Yeah, and, I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed about that. They're so yeah. boring. And, <laughs> So we've already released, I don't know, 30,000 plus. So what's a few more? <laughs> what's a, yeah. a few more? And, and they're about Benghazi. And what difference does that make, right? We already know that yeah. it doesn't make, make any difference. All right. But Clinton is still ahead. Clinton's lead has shrunk. In early August, it was 7.6%. This is from The Hill. And she did make it to 50% support. That's obviously after the convention. It's now shrunk to 4.3 points in the real clear politics average. And she's fallen short of the 50% mark in the last six national polls. She holds a 4.3 point advantage nationally over Trump. But she leads across the board in the battleground states that will decide the election. Trump's path to the necessary 270 electoral vo votes is exceedingly narrow with a handful of swing states, Colorado and, and Virginia among them, already apparently out of reach. So he's uh, having a hard time. But 
It doesn't matter because he's moved to Mexico. Or maybe he hasn't moved to Mexico. He just went to Mexico to uh, meet with President Enrique, Enrique Pina Nieto. What these guys are going to talk about, I don't know. It, it actually, I, I have to say, this actually seems like a smart move to me. Because what can happen? I mean, Nieto can like kind of wag his finger in his face and lecture him, which is always a mistake with Trump because <laughs> he'll just explode and blow you away. Or they can come, you know, look to have some comedy and friendliness, and then Trump can come back and say, "Oh, all right, you know, we won't deport all the mothers and children from the country," you know, which he's he's going to do. He's making a speech tonight that he's delayed, I think, three times already. He's put it off three times. He's going to make a speech tonight on his new immigration policy. And, you know, I guess he comes back from Mexico and he says, oh, we talked it over and we, you know, this is the part of the deal and all this stuff. So I don't know. I, I, it seems to me like a smart move. And, and now he's going to come out and say what everybody suspects he's going to say is that he's going to stop talking about this deportation force. There's not going to be any mothers ripped from the arms of their children. And everybody, remember that before it was, the bad guys leave immediately. And then Everybody has to leave, and the good guys can come back legally. And this was, you know, don't forget, okay, this was a big deal. This is what made Donald Trump. It wasn't just the wall. I mean, the wall was the big thing, but this whole tough guy talk on immigration. And if you were, happened to be listening to the show, this was just when we were getting started, so there were only a few people listening, but they would hear me saying, this is never going to happen. But he insisted this is happening. Let's go back. Let's go back in the Wayback Machine and listen to Trump back in the day. We're going to get rid of the bad ones because we have some really bad ones in here right now. And you know that gang members in L.A., you look at some of these gangs, they're 100 percent illegal immigrants. They're going to be gone, okay? And they're going to be gone fast. And they're not going to be in our prisons for us to take care of them. Our prisons are bursting with illegals right now. What about bursting. though the law-abiding sure. majority? That's now the question. Now you have people that came in illegally, yes. and they're called illegal immigrants, and they're here illegally. They're going to have to go, and they're going to have to come back in legally. And Otherwise, we don't have a country. And if we don't do that, we don't have a country. They're going to have to go, and they're going to have to come in legally. They're going to have to come in through a system. You have right now, Aaron, millions of people that want to come into the country. Millions. They're on a waiting list. They've gone through documentation. They've gone through all sorts of things. And they're waiting on a list, in some cases, for years. Yes. And it's very unfair to them. It's very unfair. Now. You can do the work visa thing in terms of the grapes, because I have people, friends with the grapes, and they may need people. We can do lots of different things. For the agriculture. But to come here and stay here, you have to come in to the country legally. We either have a country or we don't. Okay, and the big deal about this, remember, was that everybody else was weak. So we don't know what he's going to say tonight. He may just stick to his guns. We're going to deport everybody. They're going to all get on buses, 12 million people. And that, by the way, is a low estimate, right? That's the anti-Ann Coulter estimate. Ann believes that I think 250 million of the 300 million Americans are illegal immigrants and they have to go. She wants like the entire country to leave except for white people who came over on the Mayflower. But <laughs> a little unfair, but just a, just a little joke, Ann. Just a, um, so, so, but the, the important thing about this was that everybody else was weak. Remember, Marco Rubio was the gang of eight, and he wanted amnesty, and John Kasich was weak and all this stuff. And here was Kasich back in the day. This is after the debate in late February. Kasich comes on, and he reacted to what Trump was saying. 
And what I want to do is finish the border, make sure we can protect the border, but then we can have a guest worker program. And for the 11 and a half million people who came here illegally, if they have not broken the law since they've been here, I would give them a path to legalization and not to citizenship. They'd have to pay back taxes. And that's practical, Eric. I mean, you know, we're not going to be deporting, going and yanking people out of their homes. That's just a fantasy. So I think what I'm proposing is something that actually could pass the Congress of the United States and actually bring Republicans and Democrats together to get that finally done. Well, so, so Donald Trump and Ted Cruz say send the 11 or 12 million back first, let them come back in, get in the back of line. You disagree with those? <laughs> How are they going to get them? They're not going to just leave. Are you kidding me? What are you going to do? Drive into neighborhoods and start yanking people out of their homes, leaving their kids on the front porch screaming? I mean, that's not who we are, and that's not going to happen. That'll never. It will never happen. They'll never pass it. It's just not going to be what we're going to do. Okay. And the the point about this, the reason I'm playing this is because remember, this was weak, weird, funny-shouldered John Kasich. We're all laughing at him. You know, Donald Trump is the strong man. Some of us, some of us, just to remind you, you know, I don't want to say I told you so, but some of us kept saying, you know, you can sound like a strong man and not be a strong man, and you can sound quiet, speak quietly, and actually be the stronger guy. You know, that's just, that is just a truth of life. It's a truth, unfortunately, that many women forget and many men forget and follow that noise, that thing that sounds like strength, that thing that sounds like masculinity, but isn't. So now we're, the, the important thing that Kasich said there is that it's a fantasy, okay? It's a thing that takes place in people's mind. We're going to deport all these people, these millions of people. People are going to watch on TV these, these women screaming and the babies screaming. You know, they're going to look at that, and they're all going to say, yeah, just, yeah, let's, let's go and do that. Because the same people who are calling for that are going to see it on TV and start to say, how did we let this happen, okay? So now, now it's, it sounds like Trump is softening. He said himself there may be softening. Will there be a deportation force? It's to be determined. So a guy calls in Rush and says to Rush Limbaugh, you know, you sold us this thing as if it were serious. And here's part of this exchange between this caller and Rush. Go ahead. With all due respect, Rush, on Chuck Todd's show, he specifically said when asked the question, you mean you're going to rip the families apart? He said, no, I'm not going to rip the families apart. They all have to go, even the U.S. citizen children. He then got in the middle of the debate and the argument between Marco and Ted when Ted wanted legalization and Marco wanted citizenship as part of a comprehensive plan that he said they're both wrong and they're both being absurd. They all have to go or we don't have a nation of laws. Come on. You were watching the debates as well as the rest of us were. You know exactly what he said, and you know exactly the way he ridiculed everybody on that stage. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess the difference is, or not the difference. I guess the thing is, this is going to enrage you. You know, I can I can choose a path here to try to modify you, but the, I never took him seriously on this. But thirty million, or fifteen, or ten million, excuse me, ten million people did. Yeah, and, and they still don't care. That my point, they still don't care. They're going to stick with him no matter what. Speaking truth and letting that guy have his say. We're going to have to say goodbye to you on Facebook. Come over to the Daily Wire and hear the rest. It just gets more interesting with the mailbag. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
we all love Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh is like a god to us. I mean, not just because he was a pioneer in doing this, not just because he was among the first people to actually realize there was an audience for the kind of commentary that I'm doing right this minute, but because he's still the best. He is still that good. I mean, he is great. He is one of the great observers. He's one of the great talkers. I've never seen, and I grew up in radio. My dad was a famous radio guy. I never saw anybody used to drive my father, my liberal father crazy when I would say, this is the best guy on radio, you know, since you. And my father knew it was true. You know, he is just a master. But, but it's also true that he played this game. You know, he did, it's not true to say that on the air he didn't take it seriously. I mean, Ala Pundit put out uh, a piece basically going back to a time when Rush was saying, look, if 12 million taxpayers screwed the IRS, we'd hunt them down. Why can't we hunt these people down? You know, he did take it seriously or did at least make it sound like it was serious. And nobody made it sound more serious than Sean Hannity. Sean had Laura Ingram on and they kept saying, you know, this is a real deal. Why can't we do this? And Coulter, they all kept saying this is a real thing, playing into what was a fantasy. Because remember, sitting behind a mic like this, you are living in radio land. You're living in TV land. You're living in podcast land. You're not living in Washington, D.C. You're not living in the homeland. You're not living in people's living rooms. You're not living in, the, in a real world where things have consequences. And people don't want to hear it. So here's Hannity. He can't do what Rush did, bravely back off. Rush let that guy have his say. He said, look, I never really took this seriously. I mean, that, that takes guts, I mean, to, to do that on the air. Hannity, on the other hand, what did, how did Alec Pundit put it? He said, Hannity's in a different position because he's been such an enthusiastic mouthpiece for Trump for so long that there's no way credibly to pretend that he hasn't been on the Trump train. His blame-shifting strategy is simply to pound the table. I'm to blame for what looks like a dispiriting defeat this fall, he implies, just because I backed a guy to the hilt who's been at 60% unfavorable in national polls. You're to blame. That's what, so that's what Hannity's saying. Listen to Hannity come in after uh, the never-Trumpers. So here's what I say to all of you never-Trumpers. Glenn Beck, I hope you're listening. You own Hillary Clinton's Supreme Court appointments. You own it. You are doing everything you can do to cast doubt in people's minds. Trump gave us a list. You own her Supreme Court nominees. You own the unvetted refugees and the 550% increase you will bring into this country. You own the jobs that illegal immigrants will take from the 95 million Americans out of the labor force. You own Obamacare, which is a disaster for this country. You own education because she's beholden to the NEA. And if we don't improve the lives of 95 million Americans out of the labor force, I blame you for that, too, because you're helping elect her. And, you know, I'm sorry, but that is absolute nonsense. That is absolute nonsense. Donald Trump has been a garbage candidate. You know, elections, elections aren't won at big speeches. Elections are won in little counties where if you put that county together, you know, you, you get that piece of the state and finally you build a state win and that's what you need. Hillary Clinton's got somebody in every house, outside of every house, there's a Hillary Clinton operative. Trump's got nobody. He's built no uh, infrastructure to win this. If he wins it, if he, he pulls it off, hey, I'll take it back. I'll say I was wrong. But right this minute, it looks like he simply hasn't built the infrastructure. Remember, this is one of, Hillary Clinton is one of the most hated, most corrupt, most 
empty people in the country. You know, really, Mickey Mouse should be able to beat her. Unfortunately, we didn't run Mickey Mouse. And Trump, and Hannity's routine that he was fair to everybody and then only backed Trump after he became the candidate, just it isn't true. That is just is not a fair representation of what Hannity did. Hannity did have all the candidates in. He was always a Trumper. He backed Trump to the hilt. He's stuck with this candidate who now, you know, look, this flip-flop may be good for Trump. I'm not saying it won't be. It may be good for Trump. People may stick with him. Uh, Rush may be right. People may stick with him. He may pick up some moderates and all this. But he has been a bad candidate just in terms of doing the due diligence that it takes to win an election. And if he loses, it's really the people who supported him and lifted him up when he was being unrealistic and speaking to people's fantasies. And by the way, you know, we... This is showbiz. We need you to listen. So if you turn people off when they tell you a truth that they don't like, you know, that doesn't help either. You know, these guys are fighting for their lives, and it's one of the reasons they're saying what you want to hear. And now, that, that if that comes a cropper, they're going to suddenly take their hands off and say, oh, it wasn't us, it wasn't us. But, you know, it is. It's, it's, it's anyone who backed a guy who just never really had a chance to win. All right, let's go to the mailbag. Yay! Woohoo! Okay. Uh, oh boy, we have a we have a visual and everything. Gosh, come on, you got to subscribe. I mean, when you have visuals, like this is how we we pay with your subscriptions for these visuals. All right, I asked people before I get to the questions. I did ask people if they would submit some of the stuff that they like, and I just want to mention one of those was Jared. He said, for things that I like, there's a movie called Dark City that is really really good. It's a noir noir science fiction film that flopped at the box office due to horrible marketing and the fact it came out along with Titanic. You like the Matrix and you like the noir genre, so I'm sure you'll like this. If you do see it, watch the director's cut. Absolutely right. I love Dark City. Dark City it came out in 1998. It is a terrific movie. As a movie, it really is better than The Matrix. It doesn't have the flash. It doesn't have the size of The Matrix, but just as a story, it's much better. It is written uh, by... Uh, the director, Alex Proyas, Lem Dobbs, and David Goyer. And you know Goyer because he wrote the uh, Dark Knight trilogy. Terrific picture. If you've never seen it, uh, watch uh, Dark City. All right. Uh, from Jeremiah, Mr. Clavin, you have written both screenplays and books. What do you feel are the strengths and weaknesses of one over the other? And when does one do a better job than the other one? I have written both screenplays. You can watch a, uh, a film I wrote called Shock to the System. You can watch another one I wrote called One Miss Call, but don't. It didn't come out very well. Uh, and I've, wrote, I've, I've actually sold many screenplays, but the ratio to screenplays you sell to the ones that get made into films is always very small. You know, the difference between writing a novel and writing a screenplay is the difference between being an architect and being a carpenter. Uh, you know, when you write a novel, you can spend all morning writing about a guy crossing a room. You have to create the room, you have to create the man, you have to create the guy's inner voice, you have to create the mind, what's going on, the tension, where's the tension coming from? Everything is on you. It's like being, you know, like unto a god. You are making a, an entire world and the reader knows nothing but what you say to him and nothing can be suggested to him but what you suggest. That same job, when you're writing a screenplay, goes like this. He walks across the room. Because that guy is going to be, you know, Tom Cruise, and he's going to fill up that character with his persona. Uh, uh, you know, the set director and the art director and the director are all going to put that piece together. No movie can be good without a good screenplay, but a good screenplay doesn't guarantee a good movie because of the power of everybody else, especially, especially the, the director. What you can do is you can create this 
framework, like a carpenter puts up a framework for a house, for the people to build the house around. And then you're at their mercy. Uh, and when screenwriters always complain that they don't get enough credit, they don't deserve that much credit. I mean, you can't, they are indispensable on the one hand, because everything starts with the screenplay, everything starts with the story, so they're indispensable, but too many people have to get it right. You know, I, when I made one missed call, I, I'll still tell you, that was a good screenplay. It was a good screenplay. If it's not a good movie, it was because everybody else was, everybody was doing something different when they made that screenplay. So you just don't have that kind of power, and you really don't have to take the blame. If you don't have to take the blame, you don't get a lot of the credit. The credit almost always belongs mostly to the director. The difference between novels and movies, I still like novels better than movies, but they're a dying art form. No, nothing nothing can get into the human psyche like prose. Uh, a society that depends on pictures is going to become a stupid society ultimately, uh, and I think we can actually watch that happening in real time. But, I think, but look, the movies are great. They're immediate. They're visceral. They're artistic in the, in, in the true sense of the word and that they use visual art to tell a story. So I, you know, they're a great art form, and the writer is a small piece of that. From Zach, Supreme Commander Clavin. About time somebody got my title right. Jeez, hey, Supreme Commander Clavin. The VMAs and Colin Klapperchick have recently added more false fuel to the fire. Do you think that athletes and celebrities believe in Black Lives Matter and the left-wing narrative, or are they gaming the system to increase their fame and fortune? No, I think they really do believe. This narrative is extremely powerful, and I've talked about this in terms of God and atheism, this intellectual current that is in part created by the media, by the entertainment media, by the educational system, all of which are owned by the left. This intellectual current that sweeps people away, that makes people think they know what they don't know, is, is just incredibly powerful. People believe that blacks are oppressed, you know, and being oppressed by the police. They believe the police are hurting them rather than helping them. They believe the police are the danger to uh, black people instead of the criminals that the police are rounding up in droves to try and save black lives. Police, tough policing has saved black lives, but the one bad guy or the one guy who makes a mistake, that gets all the press. So, you know, one thing you always have to remember is people relate to people who are like them. So, for instance, if you have a middle-class black friend and he keeps getting stopped by the cops when he's driving home because he has a fancy car and the cops sees a black guy in a fancy car, thinks what's going on there, that's, you know, that's very hurtful. It's very offensive. And you know that guy, or maybe it's a football player you admire or an actor you admire, and it does happen. It happens all the time. This happens all the time. But that's not as important as the poor woman whose son is blown away while he's doing his homework on the bed, which is happening like every day in Chicago, while that kid is trying to study to get out, while that mother is giving everything she has to get that kid out, and then he just gets blown away like that by some gangbanger, you know, that's happening a hundred times more, a thousand times more often than the rare bad cop. But nobody cares about the poor. This is true on the left and the right. Only Jesus cares about the poor. Nobody cares about the poor. So that story doesn't resonate. We can all relate. We can all relate to the guy who's driving a car who gets stopped for driving while black. And we can all relate to that and care about it. So this narrative really has swept away. Obama has used it. I just got attacked the other day for saying that Black Lives Matter and the alt-right are basically the same people. I've got everybody attacked me for that. I'm right, <laughs> but that's okay. I'm getting attacked because racism is nuts. Racism is a form of, of dementia and uh, a form of delusion. And yet, and yet, the racist narrative is so powerful that people can't step out of that tide and think about it. All right.
from Samuel. Even though Obamacare seems to be failing, did it get the pre-existing condition part right? Now, this is a great question, tough question. It seems to me that the free market failed in regards to those with pre-existing conditions attempting to get health insurance. This is a complicated answer, but I have to give it the way insurance is a bet against your own health. You give me a dollar every day in the hope that you, when you get sick, right, I will then take those that money and the money I took from other people and pay for your medical care. Okay, so if if you get sick in five days and I you've given me five dollars and your health care costs ten bucks, you've won that bet. You've won that bet. If you get sick in fifteen days, which is more likely, and that's why it's a smart bet for the insurance company, then I pay the ten dollars, but I've won fifteen dollars. I've gotten fifteen dollars, and that's how I make a profit. If you come to me and you're already sick, there is no bet. That's not a business. There's no business that exists like that. Oh, you know, yes, you wrecked your car, now I'll sell you insurance, now I'll pay for it. You know, that's not a business, okay? The way that you handle this is you give people very high deductibles so that everybody's paying for his own health care until catastrophe strikes, unless, you know, you want to you spend that extra money, and you let people compete across state lines. That will bring, you know... <laughs> Everything you see, iPhones, television sets, everything you see is not controlled by the government. It gets cheaper. Healthcare gets more expensive because the government tells you that it's a right. You want high deductibles. You want massive competition across state lines. And, and, and that way, the prices start to come down. And look, if you're indigent, if you're poor, there's going to be an emergency room that will, that has to, by law, take care of you. That's a system that could work and could actually bring down medical costs. But when you subsidize things, they get more expensive because just think of when you go take your car in and it's got a dent. The mechanic, first thing the guy says to you is, will insurance take care of this? You say yes. You, say, you know, oh well, it'll be five thousand dollars. You know, no, it's three hundred bucks. You know, and so that's happening with medical care too. The pre-existing condition is a, um, it's a con. It's a con. You cannot run a business in which you're paying for something that's already happened. All right, final Tennyson stuff I like. And listen, I really urge you if you care about poetry or beautiful writing at all, go out and buy a small collection of Tennyson. He wrote about King Arthur. He wrote wonderful, wonderful poems, easy to understand. Here is the poem he wrote that is, uh, the, he wrote this poem, he said it took him a moment. He said it came to him in a moment. And he wrote it when he got sick on board a ship, and it's called Crossing the Bar, about heading out to sea, going across the low bar, hoping the tide will lift you over it and heading out to sea. And it's obviously about dying. And so on his deathbed, he asked his son that this poem be put at the end of all his collections. That's the tradition. Any collection you buy of Tennyson will end with this poem, Crossing the Bar. It is a beautiful piece of work, and it's very short. I'll read the entire thing. Sunset, an evening star, and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea, but such a tide as moving seems asleep, too full for sound and foam, when that which drew from out the boundless deep turns again home. Twilight, an evening bell, and after that, the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark, for though from out are born of time and place, the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. Hubert, Barry, uh, Hubert Perry put this to beautiful, beautiful music, and we will end with that, but we will be back tomorrow for the last day before the long, long, long Clavenless weekend, and they just get longer every time, don't they? I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Let's play the music as we head out.